Well, what does the word peace actually mean? Have you ever really thought about that? Uh, is it merely the absence of war, uh, the absence of open hostility? Uh, is, it, is it the absence of hatred toward one another? Or, or does it actually mean something more than that? Uh, the word just has several shades of nuance and meaning, right? So for example, uh, when World War I ended, uh, the warring nations signed a peace treaty, right, called the, peace, or the Treaty of Versailles. And they stopped firing their guns at each other, uh, but it wasn't exactly what we would call peace, right? Uh, Germany felt very oppressed uh, by the, the, the peace terms that they were made to sign. They had to pay reparations and, and they had to uh, give up certain lands. And that oppression that they felt was not a peaceful time for them. In fact, uh, they felt downtrodden, which gave rise uh, to Adolf Hitler, who promised to rebuild the national pride of Germany. And, and he built a military that nearly conquered all of Europe. Uh, and after Hitler's demise at the end of World War II, uh, the various nations signed another peace treaty, right? The, P the peace treaty of Paris this time. Uh, but the end of that conflict brought a new one, uh, the Cold War between Russia and the United States. Uh, the, U the United States had shown its military might by uh, dropping atomic bombs on Japan uh, to end the war. Uh, and Russia soon had that technology as well. And so peace between Russia and the United States was very tenuous. Mistrust, paranoia, fear uh, were the words of the day. Uh, no guns were fired, but each side was worried that the other was going to drop the bomb on them. And uh, you may remember, as I do, uh, hiding in coat closets or under your desk, uh, practicing air raid drills, what to do in case the Russians actually dropped the bomb on us. Uh, and so uh, when you're uh, doing those things in grammar school, uh, it would be really hard to define that as any kind of peace. Uh, it, it's peace in the, in the absence of guns firing, but it's not biblical peace, is it? Uh, the word for peace in Hebrew is the word shalom, uh, which means more than just the absence of hostility or open conflict. Uh, shalom means the, the all-encompassing desire for one another's good, health, well-being, uh, all of those things. And so uh, when Jews greet one another and they say shalom, uh, what they're saying to each other is that I wish the very highest good on you. I, I wish the very best of things for you. So much more than just lack of open hostility. And God wants shalom with us too. Uh, not just the absence of hostility, uh, but to give us uh, the very highest good that he can give us, which is the gift of Jesus Christ, his son, and peace through him. So if we receive Jesus, our status changes from enemies with God, right? We were once enemies with God, but now through the cross of Jesus Christ, now we have peace with God. We are his children. We are his heirs and co-heirs with Jesus. We inherit everything that Jesus inherits when Jesus comes again. So what we're after today is, is how we get this peace. So uh, this week is uh, week two of our Advent series, More Reasons That Jesus Said He Came. And our theme this week, as we said, is peace. So in this series that we began last year, uh, we've been just picking out various uh, statements that Jesus made uh, out, of the, out of his own mouth, the words that he said are for the reasons that Jesus uh, came. And then we're trying to tie them to the Advent theme of the week. So last week our theme was hope, and the scripture was John 6, 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
and this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Uh, so we said we have hope because God's will is that Jesus lose none of whom uh, God has given him. And that's you and me, believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, we can never be lost. Our certain hope is that we will be in heaven someday. And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And this week's reason that we're talking about why Jesus said he came comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now you may be thinking, what does that particular passage have to do with peace? Well, the answer is that we cannot have peace with God unless we place our faith in the only one who could and did fulfill the law and the prophets. And so the specific reason that Jesus said he came this week is not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That's why he came, because in our human weakness and in our sin uh, and the sin nature we have, we cannot follow the law perfectly. By our own deeds, God will judge us uh, as being guilty of being his enemies. Uh, but because of Jesus' provision on our behalf, God can uh, receive us as sons and daughters. So, so how can we have uh, this peace with God? Uh, only through faith in Jesus Christ, who, who did what we could not, uh, living a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling the law and the prophets, and then dying on the cross for our sins. So as we continue our Advent uh, series this week talking about peace, uh, we're going to ask three questions about peace, and they are this. Uh, how did we lose peace with God? How did Jesus make peace with God possible? And then how can we get this peace? So uh, how did we lose peace with God? Uh, on the sixth day, as you know, after God created uh, the world and everything in it, God created Adam. And Adam was God's crowning achievement. God made him in his own image. Uh, Adam was a thinking, reasoning being who shared some of God's attributes. Uh, he, God gave uh, Adam the ability to love and, and to reason and to think and, and to be kind, good and compassionate. Uh, and then God created Eve from Adam's rib uh, to be Adam's helper and companion. And when God created on the first five days, God said, it is good. But when God created Adam and Eve, he said, it is very good, very good, his crowning achievement. And Adam and Eve used to walk in the garden with God. Can you imagine? Walking in paradise uh, with God, uh, the almighty creator. And so the, the story of the first two chapters of Genesis is, is, is peace with God enjoyed. But the story of Genesis chapter 3 is peace with God destroyed. The serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field, and uh, he was Satan in the form of a snake who tempted Eve with the, with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and it was the only tree uh, that they could not eat from, and anything and everything else in the garden was theirs uh, to enjoy. But Satan convinced Eve that God was withholding his best from her. Uh, that uh, he, he didn't want Eve to have something that he could have given her, but, but chose not to. Uh, and so 
uh, Satan showed Eve this, this fruit. And, and when Eve saw that it was uh, good for knowledge and for food and, and desirous to look at, uh, she took it and she ate. Uh, and she gave some to Adam and he ate too. And so they rejected God's provision. They showed ingratitude toward all that God had provided. And they, they disobeyed the one, the one restriction that he had placed on them. And so God came down for one of, his, one of his regular walks with Adam and Eve, and he found them hiding. And he says, why are you hiding? And they said, well, we were naked. And God says, well, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree uh, that I told you not to eat from? Uh, and, of course, they had to confess. Uh, God knew that they had done that, but uh, God wanted the confession from them. And so Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent and uh, pointing fingers all around. Uh, and so God's judgment on this was to pronounce curses. And his curse on Eve was increased pain in childbirth. And so every time a woman gives birth to a baby, it's a reminder uh, that peace with God has been lost. And he also pronounced the curse on Eve that she would want to uh, dominate her husband, but she would not be able to. And so peace in relationships lost, peace with God lost, peace in relationships lost. God's curse on Adam is that by the sweat of your brow, uh, you will toil and make this ground produce food. So uh, no longer peace with the earth that God had given uh, to Adam and Eve uh, to tend. Uh, so, uh, and then even the curse of death itself, sin and death entered into the world. And so their, their sin meant that peace was destroyed. And we are Adam and Eve's progeny. Peace with God has been destroyed. And so... Uh, now we live on this side of the cross and we can ask the question, well, how did Jesus make peace with God possible again? Well, in the middle of all the cursing in Genesis chapter 3, God's promise in Genesis 3.15 stands out uh, like a rose among thorns. Uh, cursing the serpent, God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so here is God's first promise of a, of a coming redeemer, uh, the Messiah, uh, who would one day defeat evil and restore all things. Well, centuries after God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, uh, God established a people called Israel uh, through Abraham and promised to give him land, seed, and blessings. Israel was God's chosen people. But after the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all died, Israel found itself enslaved in uh, Egypt for 400 years. Uh, but then God raised up Moses uh, to deliver the people from Egypt. And after he delivered uh, the people from Egypt through the Exodus, God gave Moses the law. The law, which includes the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial laws and the dietary restrictions and the sacrificial system, and one reason that God gave them the law was because he wanted them, his people, to look different from the rest of the world. He didn't want them to look like everyone else. They were special. They were chosen. And the sacrificial system was God's temporary means of atonement for them and worship for God when they failed to keep the provisions of the law. So God graciously didn't take their lives when they sinned, uh, but he required a costly offering, right? They could bring a bull, a goat, a ram, uh, a lamb, a, a pigeon, uh, depending on what the sin was and the sinner's means. And the priest would sacrifice that animal in the place of the sinner, in the, in the sinner's place, and as an act of worship of God, who graciously accepted that animal's blood rather than demanding their own. 
And so uh, that was the, the nature of the sacrificial system. And, and God sent prophets also to warn Israel because they were lax about keeping the law, that, that judgment was coming, uh, impending punishment for failure to keep the law. Now, the Jews had been steeped in this for 1,400 years by the time Jesus came. Can you imagine how deeply rooted the law would become uh, in, in 1,400 years when they chose to obey it? Anyway, um, now in the century before Jesus came, uh, two groups of religious folks, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees arose, and there were also the scribes. They arose to power, and they made countless additions uh, and interpretations to this law that God had given. Here's just one example. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. So the fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath, uh, one of the Ten Commandments. And so the Sabbath prohibits work. But what is work? How do we define such a thing? And so work had to be defined, and the scribes and Pharisees described it as carrying a load. All right, great. Well, what's a load, right? So you're just kicking the can down the road. So uh, we have to figure out what a load means. The, descri the scribes defined a load as something that, that is the weight equal to a dried fig or less, or enough wine for mixing in a goblet, or one swallow of milk, right? Uh, so an ounce of food, an ounce of drink, that became uh, the limit. That's how they interpreted uh, what the law meant. They argued about whether a lamp was a load and whether they could move it from one side of the room to another. Uh, they, they argued about whether a woman could wear jewelry on the Sabbath. Did that count as a load? They argued about whether a child could lift his, or a man could lift his child on the Sabbath. Is that a load? Is that carrying a load? So the scribes and Pharisees were very zealous for the law. They, they wanted to, uh, to, to say that they fulfilled it, but they, but they didn't know the spirit of the law, right? They missed the whole spirit of the law. And that's why Jesus, when he came, said the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs who are beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness because the law had become just a set of external rules and regulations to be obeyed. And often, the interpretations by the scribes and Pharisees actually made the law easier for them to uphold uh, rather than, than harder for them to uphold, and they compromised God's standards. And then they became proud of their obedience, uh, such as it was, and, and uh, to what Jesus called the traditions of men rather than obedience to the law of God. And so their obedience was out of duty. It wasn't out of love for God. And God's purpose for the Sabbath was to, to give people rest, to allow them time to worship and honor God, not fight over the weight limit of a load. And so it, it's hard for people who don't understand the nature and the spirit of the law to have peace with God. And that's what God wants. He wants peace with us. When, when Jesus began his public ministry, uh, just think about what the people must have thought of Jesus, right? He's, here's a new kind of guy on the scene doing different kinds of things than the scribes and Pharisees do. Uh, by the time Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they, the scribes and Pharisees, he'd already run afoul of them by healing twice on the Sabbath, uh, by picking grains uh, from uh, stalks of wheat on the Sabbath. Uh, he'd already chased the money changers out of the temple uh, courts once on the Sabbath. Uh, so was he for the law or against the law? The people weren't sure what to think of him. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets them straight about what his view of God's law is. So this is the context 
of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, and 18 in particular. Remember, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the Beatitudes, right? A bunch of, of timeless statements about the qualities and characteristics of Christ's true disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, are the merciful, the peacemakers. These will inherit the earth. And then the passage on salt and light tells us how we are supposed to affect the world like salt and light does. But the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount, the main theme, what it's all about, is righteousness. Uh, how, how to be righteous and how to live righteously. And so the principle of verses 17 and 18 that we're talking about today is that righteousness is not found in the law, it's found in Jesus. So in the Sermon on the Mount and in everything Jesus ever taught, Jesus never once lowered the bar of righteousness to accommodate uh, the compromises that the scribes and Pharisees made or to make it easier for them to keep the law. Uh, he raised the law, in fact, back to the bar, back to God's perfect standards. Uh, and his original hearers of the Sermon on the Mount would have thought, this is too hard, this is impossible, nobody can possibly keep that. And that's the point, is it? isn't it? Nobody can possibly keep that. And so when we understand that, we realize we're, we're forced to, to admit that, that we have something lacking in us. Uh, we can never keep the law perfectly. Uh, the, the Beatitudes are just an example of, of what a person who is a perfect disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. And in fact, it's a description of Jesus himself uh, when we think about it. Uh, so we can't keep the law perfectly. And yet, at the same time, the law is God's standard for getting into heaven. If we want to get into heaven, we must keep the law perfectly. And if we can't, we're doomed. And so we're forced to admit that we, we can't get there by our own performance. We are not righteous, and so we need someone else's righteousness. And only Jesus is 100% righteous. We must receive our righteousness from him by humbling ourselves before him and receiving him as our Savior. So that is the context of verses 17 and 18. Jesus made a peace with God possible by fulfilling the law and the prophets on our behalf because we never could. So let's look at the verses again. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does the law and the prophets mean? Like every single thing, is that what Jesus was talking about? Yeah, that's what he was talking about. The law and the prophets was kind of a, a Jewish saying or idiom uh, that includes all of divine revelation from Genesis all the way to Malachi, like we might say from A to Z or from soup to nuts or something like that, just to show that everything is included. Uh, the law and the prophets mean the entire word of God. So just a couple of examples to show that that's true. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 7, in everything, therefore, treat, the pe treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. See, the law and the prophets as a summary of everything that God wants us to do. Matthew 22, 37 to 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So again, uh, all the law and the prophets encompasses the entire word of God. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So Jesus, the, the prediction of all that the law and the prophets wrote about. 
And Jesus, for his own part, he embraced everything in the Old Testament. He cited it over and over again as authoritative. I remember in uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And so all the answers uh, to all the questions are found in the law because it has authority uh, and God's word is true and eternal. This is what uh, Jesus wanted to communicate to them. Uh, Jesus himself, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, three times he quoted from Deuteronomy, right, to answer uh, Satan's uh, temptations. And after his resurrection, he met two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were discussing all the things that had happened in Jerusalem over the past few days, and they were perplexed by these events. And Jesus comes up alongside them, walking, and says to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And so God's word is true and eternal. And Jesus loved the Old Testament. He believed in it. He said not the smallest stroke or the smallest letter would pass away until all was complete. Now, if you uh, are familiar with the King James Version of this verse, uh, it talks about not one jot or one tittle disappearing until all was fulfilled. So uh, the jot is that small letter that you see uh, called the yod. That's the smallest letter uh, in the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle is this little extension on the back of this letter that's, that makes it distinguishable, the dalit from the resh, is only by that little thing that they call a tittle, that little, exp that little extension. Just like a, uh, take a, a capital O and you put a slash through it, it becomes a capital Q, right? Just the smallest stroke of a pen. Jesus says not one bit of it, not the smallest stroke, not the least commandment, nothing, nothing in the Hebrew law will pass away until all was accomplished because the authority of Scripture is absolute. Now today, sadly, People pick and choose the parts of the Bible they like, right? Even pastors do this, and I think that's a shame. They, they, they take the parts of the Bible they like, they discard the rest. They like the God of love, uh, they don't like the God of judgment. They like the God of the New Testament, they're not so much the God of the Old Testament, right? Uh, they love the idea of heaven, uh, but nobody wants to talk about the concept of hell uh, as judgment for our sins, well, Jesus didn't have that view of God. Jesus had the very highest possible view of Scripture, all of Scripture, because he's Scripture's author. Uh, and so Jesus said, in effect, don't understand or misunderstand what I am saying. Uh, I am not coming to destroy the law. I am here to fulfill the law. And when you think about it, it has to be that way, because the word abolish means to destroy. And if he destroyed the law, that would put him at odds with his father, right? And that's not why Jesus came. He left heaven, he took on flesh, he lived a perfect sinless life to fulfill the law and the prophets. That means everything that the prophets said about Messiah uh, would come true and did come true in Jesus. Micah prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus, or David said Jesus' body would not undergo decay. And perhaps the greatest fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, that we see is in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, where Isaiah wrote, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs himself he bore, 
Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well, chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So the prophesied Messiah would suffer and die for our transgressions. And so the entire Old Testament is prophetic, and Jesus came to fulfill all of it, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so fulfilling means that everything that, that God said in the Ten Commandments and everything the law demanded, Jesus performed flawlessly. He perfectly upheld God's standard of the law to its most minute requirements, and no one could convict him of sin. The animals that the Jews brought to sacrifice had to be perfect one-year-old males, unblemished, without spot, uh, and they had to be perfect. God would not accept an animal with any kind of deformity or imperfection. So how did Jesus make peace with God possible? Only by having fulfilled the law perfectly uh, and the prophets as none of us ever could. That's how Jesus became an acceptable sacrifice to God for the sins of all humanity. The entire sacrificial system pointed to Jesus as the one who would serve as the final and perfect sacrifice, fulfilling the sacrificial system by his atoning death on the cross. The ceremonies, the sacrifices, all the other elements of the Old Covenant were, as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Jesus said uh, the penalty, uh, paid the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross, and when he died, he said, it is finished. The it is everything that had to be done in order to make peace with God possible for humanity to be saved. And God showed that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead on the third day. And so Jesus has made peace with God possible. Now the last question then is, how do we get this peace with God? You know, not everyone will receive the peace of God that Jesus purchased on the cross. Only those who put their faith in Jesus will have this peace with God, and the rest will remain under God's eternal wrath and will suffer for all eternity. So what do we need to do to be sure that we have peace with God? Well, by faith, it's all by faith, we must believe that we are sinners in need of salvation and that Jesus provided that way of salvation by dying in our place. All we need to do is admit our sin, ask Jesus to forgive our sin, uh, and put our faith in him alone for salvation. In short, we need to believe the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, it's, it's sad, I think, in, in today's day and age when we look around and we see uh, the lack of faith. Um, just read a, a poll this week where I think uh, it said something like, uh, Christianity or people who identify as Christians now has dipped below 50% of our population. And of those 50%, I can only imagine, uh, you know, whether they're real Christians, I think evangelical Christians, people who identify as evangelical Christians is probably well under 10%. Uh, so faith is, is lacking uh, in the world. Uh, lots of people think that they can earn salvation by good deeds or by uh, keeping the law or by being better people than their neighbors or, or just not by killing other people. Like, that's enough. Like, that's the bar. Uh, so that's, that's pretty sad. Uh, and they think Christmas is a feel-good holiday, but it, they don't think about what the significance of Christmas is. 
And the significance of Christmas is that Jesus was born. I lived a perfect life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by God giving us credit for Jesus's righteousness. And the only way that we can get credit for Jesus's righteousness is to put our faith in him. And so when we do, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, his son, and he doesn't see us in all of our sin. And when we do that, believers have peace with God. This is not just the absence of hostility, not just the absence of firing guns at each other. Uh, This is uh, the perfect peace of of knowing that God loves us with an unfathomable love uh, and the joy of being God's children, uh, something that can never be lost, can never be broken. We read about it in Romans 8 last week. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And since we know that we're God's children and that our destination is secure, we have the peace of living out our days uh, in, in uh, just seeking his glory and not striving to earn what he's already provided for us in the death and resurrection of his son. And I think that that's what the heavenly host meant uh, when they appeared to the shepherds watching by night and the angels said uh, to them in Luke chapter 2, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace on earth is God's offer to us of peace through his son. And those on him who his favor rests are those who receive Jesus. Adam and Eve had peace with God, but they lost it by their sin. But Jesus made it possible for us to have peace with God again, even though we now have a sin nature. And he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets for us since we cannot. And by his wounds, uh, we have peace with God. Not just peace to look forward to in heaven, but peace with God today. Can you imagine? Peace with God today. That he looks on us and he says, you, 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 all of you, my favor rests on you. Uh, What an incredible experience to, to know that that is true of ourselves. And so God gave us eternal life and he gave us peace with him. Now, in this world that we live in, there is plenty that could rob us of our peace, right? I mean, we don't have to look too far. There are financial issues. There are health issues. We have relational problems. Uh, We're as divided as we've ever been as a country over political issues. Uh, Social media causes all kinds of angst. There's a million things that we could point to that could rob us of our peace. Are any of these things robbing you of your peace today? Well, think about this. Can any of these things steal your eternity in heaven? The answer is no. None of these things, whatever it is that may be troubling you today, this this, this cannot steal your eternity in heaven, nor can it rob you of your peace with God today. We may have vertical or horizontal conflict with others, but our peace with God will not be interrupted vertically because we have received Jesus as his son, as uh, as his son and savior. So, 
you know, we all lose our peace from time to time, right? We, we get our apple carts upset, uh, things happen to us, we don't understand why, and our peace, uh, our internal peace can be lost anyway, the peace with ourselves. And, and we have to remember uh, that we, we can never lose our peace with God. And so this Christmas, as we think about the reasons that Jesus said he came, I want this to be one that, that we really remember because we have peace with God in, in, a, in a world that is not peaceful at all. Uh, we still have peace with God. Uh, you, I, we are eternally secure in God's hands, in the, in the hand of the Father who loves us and who gives us perfect peace. It's a peace that we can never lose because it is God's will that Jesus come and that he lose none that God has given him and because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf. So rest in his peace today during this Christmas season. Amen. Father God, we just thank you for this peace that you give us. It is a peace that we do not deserve. It is a peace that we could never earn. It is a peace that we get only because of your grace, Lord, because of the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross. And so we come to you today, Lord, just humbly and thankfully receiving that peace that you give us. And Lord, I pray that we'll be able to hold on to this peace in a world that uh, makes it very difficult for us to, to have it. Uh, Lord, may we always remember that we have peace with you, even when we don't, do not have peace with the world. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son. And this Christmas season, uh, we just humble ourselves and prepare our hearts uh, for the day when we celebrate his coming, Lord. Uh, we love you for sending him, Jesus. We love you for coming and dying on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we just praise your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.